So we're going to go ahead and get started with our lesson tonight. Um, we're focusing on uh, a new topic, if you will. Um, we're no longer studying the book of 1 Corinthians, but we're moving on to more of a topical approach. Um, so tonight's lesson is on the oneness of God. And I'm going to be doing this for the next three weeks. And uh, the emphasis here is, is to help us remind, refresh, uh, renew our understanding of the oneness of God and the biblical approach to, to understanding the Godhead. And uh, this is, I, I believe it's very much part of the, the, this, this, the, the word of God. It's part of what God wants us to know, what he wants us to understand. And uh, it, it's, it's who he is. Um, and so I'm excited for this lesson tonight. Um, give me one second. I'm trying to find my file that I made. I had a PowerPoint and it's... with me. Sorry, everybody. Okay, well, it's just being quite lovely and fun here. I'm just going <laughs> to proceed without it. All right, so um, we're going to be turning to Isaiah chapter 28 and starting at verse number nine. So if you have that with you in your Bibles or your phone app, you can follow along. Sorry, it's not coming up on the screen. Um, maybe it'll it'll wake up here while I uh, while I teach, but so um, we're starting with the understanding, first of all, the way we learn doctrine or the way we learn the word of God and what he has to say to us is so important. Um, we cannot, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because we cannot just make a doctrine. Um, by the way, doctrine is a big old theological word for a teaching, a core teaching of the word of God. We cannot make a doctrine or a core teaching of what the Bible says without um, understanding a few principles. And one of them here is found in Isaiah 29, 28, verse 9. Um, and the Bible says, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? This is a kind of a, a question that Isaiah is going to answer himself. And so he's asking this question and then he answers it. He says, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast for precept must be upon precept precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So again, Isaiah says that the way you are going, God is going to make you understand doctrine. First of all, he's going to take you away from the milk. He's going to wean you from the milk. And the the um, the illustration that that Isaiah is using here is that God teaches us doctrine and helps us to understand uh, deeper things about the Word of God by pulling us uh, into more of a mature relationship, and we we get pulled away. Paul used the same understanding to to speak about um, young believers need to be uh, taken off of the milk of the Word, the simple things of the Word and brought into greater things or greater understanding, deeper understanding, and he called that meat. And so you're drawn away from the simple things of the word of God, 
and you are taught precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So the way we understand the teachings of Scripture is one passage or truth building upon another. There's no contradictions in the Scripture. This is the, the, the miracle of the Word of God is that there is no contradictions in the Word of God, but the Word of God is a cohesive book. In other words, it sticks together. It works together. Everything about the Word of God works together, um, and it's, it's, very, it's very much like Isaiah said. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. Um, so let the Word of God speak for itself. It fits together and must be taken as a whole. It cannot be separated or isolated into parts or, 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 or items. It's got to be received as a whole um, to be fully understood. So when you go to talk about the oneness of God, you've got to start with the whole of Scripture. What does the What is the big picture of Scripture? What is the mainstream truth? What is the 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 driving verse or driving line that is precept and precept that is, uh, you know, laid and laid and laid and laid all throughout scripture in a multiplicity of ways. And, and these are the things that we can know and understand about God. And so one of the things we're going to go through, first of all, in this lesson on the oneness of God is talking about who God is, his nature. What is God like to the best of our understanding and the best that the scripture we can we can receive now it's this isn't an exhaustive um study for example this is simply we're touching on perhaps some of the more core aspects of who god is okay so the first thing we're gonna you know acknowledge about god is that he is a spirit john 4 and 24 says god is a spirit they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth um, another verse, John uh, 3, verse 8, says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou can hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And so um, the, the Spirit of God is what the Hebrew word for Spirit is ruach, ruach. And it's a feminine noun, meaning wind, breath, spirit. And um, when when the Bible uses this word in the Hebrew, it speaks of God's essence, that he is like a wind, he is like breath. Um, so in some cases, he is powerful, in some cases, he's gentle, in some cases, he brings life, and in some cases, um, he takes life. You know, it's just the, the all-encompassing aspects of wind and breath that refer to God, and it's we're speaking of his essence. What is God? Well, he is a spirit. Uh, in the Greek, the word spirit is very similar. It's the word pneuma, and it means a current of air that is a breath or a blast or a breeze. Um, and it's it's this idea that God is invisible. We cannot see air. We cannot see breath. Um, we cannot see the currents of air. Um, we can see what the air is moving. So uh, you know, if you go out into the cold, you breathe and you say, well, I can see my breath. What you're actually seeing is the condensation and the moisture coming out of your mouth. You're seeing what your breath is moving. Um, but you cannot see the breath. You cannot see the wind, but you can see what the wind is moving. And so it's like God in that way. God, you're able to see what God moves, what God does, what God touches, but you cannot see God himself. As a spirit, he's invisible. He's not bound by by physical forces that govern our natural life. As John uh, 3 verse 8 says, you cannot tell whether uh, whence it cometh and whither it goeth. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going to. You can make an educated guess. You can perhaps study it and learn patterns, but the wind can turn and do crazy things at the drop of a hat, and all of a sudden the weather forecaster's predictions are completely off base because the wind changed, and you couldn't tell when it was coming and where it was going because it's the wind. God is like that. You cannot um, you cannot put God in a box. You cannot isolate him to one corner of the universe or one corner of the world. He is everywhere at all times. God is also invisible. As we've already covered, um, 
like a, since God is a spirit, a spirit is something that cannot be seen with our human eyes, with our uh, with our senses. Um, and the Bible reiterates this point, John 1 verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. This is a powerful verse that that really encapsulates a lot of truth about the nature of God here. No man sees, can see God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, that's a lot of King James English there, but uh, if, you, if you break it down statement by statement, the first one is that you cannot see God. God cannot be visibly manifested. The only begotten Son, so this is, uh, you know, speaking of Jesus Christ, and I'm perhaps getting ahead of myself in our lesson here, but that's okay. Uh, it's good to reiterate and repeat these kinds of things. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. It's very important for you to remember that phrase. Begotten means born. So Jesus is the only Son of God, yes, but he is the only begotten Son of God. So the son did not come into existence until he was born of a woman in Bethlehem on, as we celebrate Christmas morning or Christmas day, we celebrate his birth. Um, but Jesus was not pre-existent that, that moment of incarnation when he became flesh and was conceived of a woman in Bethlehem. Um, and, and, and so God, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he's in the heart of the Father, he hath made him known. So God did not, in other words, God did not relegate all of himself in Christ. The fullness of the Godhead was in Christ bodily, yes, but that didn't, God could not be limited to a, a physical body. So that's why we see distinction of father and son for a time. And I, I'm, I'm giving you teasers because this is what we're going to be studying, and we're going to look at this more uh, in depth in Scripture, but it's good to just hear it uh, initially. Jesus is the only begotten son, and God did not cease to be God even though he had manifested himself. He had declared himself in Christ— so you can't see God, but you can see the Son. You cannot see the Father, but you can see the Son. The Son makes the Father visible. The Son brings the Father into your purview, into your ability to see and touch and experience God. So it's not two persons. It's the same God manifesting himself in different ways to reveal himself and fulfill his ultimate plan of redeeming lost humanity in his sin. And that's really what Christmas is like, the, 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 the gun going off. It's the starting pistol of this whole amazing process that God did to redeem man. Uh, we see this again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man approacheth unto, whom no man hath seen. You cannot see God. So uh, oftentimes when artists are trying to depict a trinity, They'll depict a, a light or an essence, perhaps uh, an immaterial essence. They'll have the sun, Jesus, and then they'll have a dove. But that contradicts Scripture, because the Bible says you cannot see God at any time. He lives in unapproachable light. No man hath seen him. You cannot depict him in an artist's rendition because the only depiction of God that you can make is Jesus Christ. The only artist's rendition of God you can make is Jesus Christ, because God is invisible. He has not manifested himself in any shape or form. Now, there was times and moments in history when God used an angel, perhaps, to speak on his behalf. We'll see that in the Old Testament. It says, the angel of the Lord. You know, God, uh, the angel of the Lord often speaks in the first person as God. It was an angel, God manifesting himself in the, in the temporary presence of an angel to speak directly to Abraham, to speak directly to uh, Joshua or Moses or uh, different people, different times. But um, God does not manifest himself because he is invisible. He cannot be seen at any time. But the Son has declared him. 
He lives an unapproachable life. No one can see him to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Exodus 33 verse 20 says, and he said, thou canst not see my face, God speaking to Moses, for there shall no man see me and live. So again, God is invisible. He cannot be seen. He cannot. That's why it was, it was against the Ten Commandments to make a graven image of God, because the only image of the Father is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God. And so it was a sin. It was missing the mark drastically to try to depict God in any kind of way, in any kind of shape or form, because God is not in any kind of shape or form. He is invisible. God is also omnipresent, omnipresent. This is a big, one of those big theological words that means all present. Omni is all present, is present. Uh, God is all present. And because he's all present, he's also eternal. God is eternal. Um, so these two, these two attributes or natures of who God is work hand in hand. They coincide together. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7 says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. The psalmist is making me the, uh, the point here that God is everywhere at all times. And because he's also everywhere, he's omnipresent, he's also every time at all times. He's in. That's why he's the I am that I am. He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. He is the all-present, omnipresent, and at all times is he present. He is present in the past, he is present in the present, and he is present in the future. That's why he can speak to the things that are going to happen, because he's all-present. Um, Acts 17 and verse 24 says uh, that God hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Good night, baby. God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And the Bible says he dwelleth not, Acts uh, 17, 24, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. God does not dwell in a temple that is made with hands because he cannot be contained. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So God has determined time. He has set it in motion. He bound time. In its, in its proper order. So if he's doing that, if he's organizing time, then he exists outside of the realms of time and space. He's determined things beforehand. He's appointed the boundaries of time and says, at this point in time, these things are to happen. At this point in time, these things are, are set in motion. And, and, and yes, God allows man the freedom of choice within those constraints, within those Within those blocks, he, he he allows the free will of man to to say, yes, I will. No, I won't. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's my choice. But but God does set the bounds of time ahead. So if he does that, he's existing outside of time and space. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's in God that we are able to move around and live and have our being, and, and he makes it possible for us to have that. So he is all-present, and he is eternal. Psalms 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. All God pre-exists creation. All of creation is contained by him. Uh, he, he fills the, the fields of time and space, and, and from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is the only one who truly is. He is. He simply is. And that's a powerful thought. 
1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, and invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. We're establishing the principles here of God's nature because they're, they're intrinsically connected to his oneness. And one of the greatest attributes of him is that he is one. He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't have anyone on his side, his left or his right. Uh, he is, and he is all by himself. Revelation 19 verse 6 teaches us that God is not only omnipresent, not only eternal, but he's also omnipotent, all-powerful. Bible says, and I heard as it were a great uh, uh, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, and the voice of many thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He is all-powerful. There's nothing he cannot do. Jesus, interestingly enough, uh, said these very words about himself at his resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So hopefully you're beginning to see a connection here. If the Lord God is omnipotent and Jesus is standing there saying, all power is given unto me, then surely Jesus must be the same as the book of Revelation declares the Lord God. He is the Lord God that is omnipotent, all-powerful. Uh, and, and so because of this, we can understand that God is one. So Jesus must be the manifestation of that omnipotent, all-powerful God that we serve. God is also omniscient. That's another big theological word. It means all-knowing. So God is all-present, all-powerful, and all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows it all. Uh, Psalm 139.1, the, to the chief musician of Psalm of David, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and aren't acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The psalmist is, is uh, praising God and exalting God's all-knowing character, his all-knowing power. God is also self-existent. Um, and when I say self-existent, Think of it in the terms of um, you are not self-existent. Although many young people, teenagers in, in particular and young adults, uh, have a bit of a, a superhero-ness about them, right? Like this, um, I, can, I can do anything I set my mind to. Uh, I, can, I can do anything I want. I'm free. And it's a beautiful time of life. It's a wonderful delusion <laughs> um, that, that, that grips the young. And um, they, they soon realize they can't do anything. They can, they can do a lot, but not anything. God really is the only one who is self-existent. In other words, he's not reliant on anyone or anything. He is self-sustaining. Um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Um, God's self-existence is wrapped up in this phrase, I am that I am. I will be who I will be. Now, that's something that, that many artists, they have taken that phrase and they've made songs of that have been number one bestsellers. You know, uh, I'll be what I want to be and I'll do what I want to do, and I am who who I want to be, and, and just you can't nobody tell me nothing kind of thing. But God is the only one who can really say that truthfully about himself. I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. I, I define myself. God is the only one who defines himself. We do not define ourselves. We are defined by God. God defines us because he's our creator. So he's the only one who has the right and the power and the authority, the, the, the right to define us because he created us. Uh, 
but he did not create himself. He, he is not created. He exists. He is self-sustaining and self-existing. Um, God is immutable. Another big theological word means God does not change or he cannot change. He does not alter his character, his substance, or anything about himself. God does not change. Uh, Malachi 3 verse 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, sons of Jacob are not consumed. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You'll never see God's shadow because he is the light. And he is, you will never see his shadow because he does not turn to block that light and hinder it from coming to man. God does not block his own light. So you will see no shadow of turning with him because he does not change. He remains constant and the same. God does not change his values or his principles. If he said something 2,000 years ago, it still applies today. You cannot edit the word of God. You cannot change the Bible. You cannot redefine its terminologies or its meanings. God wrote what he wrote, and we have sufficient understanding of the ancient text and the ancient language to know what God meant when he said what he said. We cannot insert our own definitions into the Bible and rewrite scripture to fit our own agendas or fit or the agendas of our world or to fit whatever we, we want to say. It, it cannot change. It's immutable. God is transcendent. He transcends. In other words, he is above everything. He is above everything. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord speaking, neither are my ways your ways, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I think that speaks for itself. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three. how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. His ways are past finding out. He is transcendent. He is above everything. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is, he is the perfect man. He is the, the image that, that, that God looked down the corridors of time and patterned the, the first man, Adam, after. Um, this, this, is, this is the beauty of God and who he is. His judgments, his ways, his thoughts are far beyond ours. We cannot know the mind of the Lord, or we cannot even be his counselor. We have to receive his mind through his word and through his spirit. And the final thing that we're going to spend the bulk of our time on is God is one. Surely, all of these other attributes and characteristics cannot be shared characteristics. By that, I mean, if God is sharing his essence with another person of himself, or in some cases, some believe that God is, is indeed uh, not a trinity, but a tri, uh, they're tritheists. They're not Trinitarians, but they're tritheists. And so I'll explain quickly. A Trinitarian is someone who believes that God is one, but split up and divided into three co-equal, co-eternal um, persons, co-essential persons. But uh, tritheism is the doctrine that God is actually three separate deities um, at the same time, and that both are um, fallible. They're not true. Because really, if you look at all these characteristics, how could you share omnipresent with another person or with another deity? How could you share all-powerful with another deity or another person? Indeed, you would not be all-powerful. You would, you would both be powerful, but not all-powerful. Someone, if only one can be all-present or all-powerful or all-knowing. 
Only one can truly be self-existent. Only one can truly be above everything else. If you have a God who is divided into three persons, which one of them is transcendent? Which one is above the rest? In that case, they cannot be co-equal or co-eternal. Uh, because these, and, and like I said, these are uh, these are immutable attributes of God that are clearly laid out in the scripture. So if you have this as your foundation, it makes it easier to understand what the Bible is teaching you because everything is cohesive in the word of God. And the word cohesive means it sticks together. Everything works and sticks and fits together. You cannot have pieces of the puzzle that don't fit and then go, well, it's a mystery. We can't explain it. God is just mysterious in this way. No, no, the Bible is pretty clear. The Bible is pretty clear about these things. They're, they're foundational truths about God's essence and God's nature. God is one. Um, Hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. And Jesus used this verse of scripture and uh, tacked on a little bit more importance to it than, than even what Deuteronomy does, what Moses does in Deuteronomy. Um, in Mark 12, 28, there was a, a, a scribe, a lawyer, who studied, who spent his life studying and copying the law on parchment, uh, and he came having heard of the reasoning of Jesus, and um, he, he said to Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? Which one trumps all the others? So if you were going to, for say, for say, uh, forget about the other commandments, which one do you, you must have down in order to, you know, please God? And Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is listen, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. Now connected to that is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that, that easily encompasses all the commands of God and following his word and obeying him. So in a sense, Jesus was saying the whole law is important. You cannot separate it. You cannot divide it up. You cannot divide it up. Just like you can't divide God up. You cannot separate him into parts or pieces or persons. You cannot. He is one cohesive God. He, he fits together and his plan fits together and his word fits together. He is like his word and his word is like him. He is one. And so uh, the Old Testament emphasizes this fact that God is one. And so we get to what I like to use an illustration, and you can't take this illustration too far, but it helps you get a visual of it uh, when you're studying the oneness of God. And it helps with verses that seem to point in a different direction. So here before you on the PowerPoint, you'll see a, a picture of the United States of America, and uh, the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River is this large blue line that is uh, dividing the country pretty much in half. Uh, this is the Mississippi. It's the great river of the United States. Um, and the Mississippi River has a lot of rivers flowing in and out of it. Some of them are large and significant. Others are small streams and small tributaries that flow into the Mississippi River and, uh, and dump into the, the Gulf here at the bottom of the United States. Um, and, and so this is a lot like the Word of God, and the, there's doctrines in the Word of God that run very deep and wide through the entire Bible. And there's lots of smaller um, verses and and ideas that flow into, you know, um, you know, horizontally into this, this one mainstream truth. And that's a lot like the oneness of God. The oneness of God is a mainstream truth of the word of God. It's found in, in every corner of the scripture, the idea that God is one and that he alone is God is all throughout the scripture. And there's lots of verses that flow in and out of that idea. Some of them seem to point, you know, when especially when we get to the New Testament and, and even into the epistles, you begin to things like Paul, read things like Paul's greetings to the churches where he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that we go, oh, that looks like two. Um, what do we do with that? Well, we have to take it as a cohesive whole. 
We cannot isolate that out and go, oh, see, there's a doctrine. Now we got to make everything else fit these few verses. Um, when the overwhelming evidence of scripture is that God is not divided into persons, but God is one God that will not give his glory to another. That's the mainstream truth. And all tributaries must flow into that mainstream truth. Okay. So this is just a little visual thing to help realize, help see that when you come across a verse in the Bible, and this is this is true for anything, um, you can read a lot of verses that support God's view of marriage, but you'll come across a few verses here and there where you'll read, like maybe Paul saying, it's good for a man not to marry. <laughs> it's good for a man to be single. You go, what? Didn't God create marriage? Like, what's the deal? Um, so is marriage not good then? You know, like, um, so there's like all these things, but they all flow together if you read them in context and as a cohesive whole. It's the same thing with the oneness of God. So when you go through the scripture, you're going to see over and over again, and we'll take a, a little bit of time here to go through some of these key deep river, deep, deep trench verses that clearly emphasize God's oneness. Um, Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. Oh, I'm sorry. Isaiah 30. I'm, I'm a little ahead of myself. Isaiah 37, 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art God, even thou alone. Okay, notice they're emphasizing you are God and God alone, not, not working with another, not, not uh, you know, having a, a, a meeting of the three. No, this is God working alone. Isaiah 42, 8. Um, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not, and my glory I will not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. God is not going to allow his praise, his glory to be given to somebody else. Um, it's again restated here in Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. And I've highlighted and under, underlined the key point of this verse. And beside me, there is no Savior. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me, there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved. I have shown where there was no strange God among you. Therefore, you're my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. God is the only Savior. He's not going to let that title be given to anyone else in the verse, in the scriptures. Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He's the first, he is the last, and there is no one beside him. Isaiah 44, 8, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not told thee that from that time? And have declared it, ye are even my witnesses, that there is there a God beside me. Yea, there is no God, I know not any. Definitely, there is no one beside him. Um, again, Isaiah 44, verse 24, um, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. So this is God speaking. He said, I'm the one who did this. Now, you turn the pages of the New Testament and you'll read about how, well, it was, it was the Word who did the creating. So the Word did the creating. In John 1, uh, the Bible says that, that without him was not made that anything that was made. It was all made by him. He was the Word creating and speaking things into life. Well, that specifically speaking, John 1 and 1 is, is, is definitely talking about Jesus Christ. And here we have John 1 declaring that Jesus Christ is the one who spoke and created all things into existence. Does that mean Jesus Christ was standing there with God the Father in the beginning dawn of time, speaking and declaring things? No, God said, I did it by myself. So how, how can both be true? They can both be true if Jesus is also the manifestation or the revelation, the image of the Father in flesh, who did the commanding and the creating in the beginning and now is revealed unto us in the man, Jesus Christ. 
All right. So I, I in the footnotes here, there's a bunch of other scriptures that just they continue to dig that trench all throughout Isaiah and down through some of the other prophets. Um, and so let's touch on a few verses, uh, one in particular that sometimes trips people up. And, and it's it's going back to that creation uh, account in Genesis chapter one, uh, where it almost, and sometimes Trinitarians point to this quite heavily and quite readily to say, see, God and Jesus are having a conversation here in the beginning, uh, the beginning dawn of time. Okay, Genesis 1.26. So God said, let us make man in our image. Now remember, we're dealing with the mainstream truth of the scripture. So um, the mainstream truth is that God does this alone. He does this by himself. He is God and there's no one beside him. But here he is in the first opening chapter of the book of, uh, of Genesis saying, let us, who's us? Let us make man in our, in our image. Okay, so we definitely have a plurality going on here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Um, and, and, and you stop there and you go, well... Yeah, I am. Well, I guess maybe there is a, maybe there's two now. I, I don't know. I you see there was only one, but now it kind of sounds like there's two, maybe three. It's possible, right? Until you go to the next verse and it becomes clear what God is doing. So God created man in his own image. So we went from the plural to the singular. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them so there's a rule in 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 hebrew a grammatical rule that you can start out in the plural but if you if you end the the sentence in the singular it makes the plural singular and it turns it into something that is only used by royals it's called the plural of majesty the plural of majesty um so the plural of majesty will speak in the plural. They'll speak in the us, in the we, but they're really speaking of themselves. Um, uh, the queen or the king might stand up there and do, uh, we are so glad to be here today. And they're not speaking about them and the mouse in their pocket. They're speaking about themselves and the position they hold as the queen or the king of that particular nation. So God said, let us make man in our image. But then the Bible says that God created man in his own image. It went back to the singular. In our image, created he him. After our likeness, created he them. So when we see this plural of majesty, God speaking in the, in the us or the we, he's speaking with the sum total of his power or glory. Some might even say that he was speaking to the angels because the angels were present when when God was creating the heavens and the earth. But I I I wouldn't go that that route because we weren't created in the image of angels. We were created in the image of God. Now you say, well, God is a spirit. So how did God create us, who are like spirit flesh? spirit body, um, creatures, how did God create us by simply looking at himself and, and patterning us? Because he looked down the corridors of time into the image that he was going to make of himself and fashioned Adam in that way. So, so uh, Jesus is God's selfie, but Adam was Jesus's selfie. Adam was the image of, of the man that God wanted to become. So God is looking at the sum total of his glory, of his power, and of his plan, and he forms man out of the dust of the earth. That's why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, yes, but he's also the, first, the firstborn. He was the pattern that God used to create Adam in the garden. Isaiah 44 and 24 says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, and spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. So we continue on, and we get into the New Testament. Um, we, we get into the scriptures like James 2 verse 19, and we continue in this, this one God, 
mainstream truth throughout the Bible. Thou believest that there, there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. So it's not much to believe in the oneness of God. If you believe that God is one, you're on the same footing as the devil. The devil believes in the oneness of God. Um, so this is a this is a core doctrine essential to our understanding. Ephesians 4, verse 5. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all, and in you all. Again, just reiterating right through the pages of scripture, right till you get to the very end, that God indeed is one. First Corinthians 8, 4. There is only one God. There is only one God. Now, that one God is manifested in the flesh. And this is what we're going to talk about in our coming up lessons. So, so uh, really, I, I've taken a lot of time tonight to illustrate the, the, how the main overarching declaration of Scripture emphasizes God's oneness, God's power, God's uh, transcendence, God's immutability. He cannot change. He cannot be um, fashioned one way or the other. He is the same. He is consistent. Um, but the truth is, a lot of Trinitarians are going to read the Scripture, and, and even Trinitarian theologians are going to read the Scripture, and they're going to cite the very same Scriptures that I've read to you tonight to talk about God being one, yet three persons. So I wanted to quickly show you that there, there the, the, the main distinctive differences between what the Trinity teaches versus what the Bible teaches. So the Trinity, Trinitarianism, the if you read the official creeds of, of Trinitarian doctrine, it says that there is three persons in one God, that there's three essential distinctions in God's nature. God is the Holy Trinity. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is all three, and they're all distinct in nature, but they're one. The Bible teaches us that there is one God with no essential divisions. And by essential divisions, I mean permanent divisions. Uh, Trinitarian will say that, that God was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the dawn of creation, and he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the at the, the end of the book of Revelation, that he is just eternally three persons, and which kind of makes it a little bit difficult because that's not even, you know, that's not even real in our world. There is nobody who is an eternal son or an eternal father in the real world. You become a son when you're born of your father, and your father was not a father until you were born as either a daughter or a son to him. So, uh, you know, there's, it's something amazing about the idea that, that the Trinitarians will say, well, God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. He's always been the Father, and He's always been the Son, and He's always been the Spirit, and really begs the question, how does that work? How does that work? Because I became a father when my wife gave birth to our son, Jacob. I wasn't a father before then. I couldn't claim to be a father. I wasn't born a father. I, I, I definitely could not have been born a father. So how does that work? And so essentially what they have to insert, then they have to insert a little explanation. They said, well, the, the son is eternally begotten of the father. In other words, the son is constantly being born spiritually, which again, doesn't make sense. And if you try to ask me to explain it, that's the best I can do, because <laughs> I can't. It doesn't make any sense. But when you line it up with what the Bible teaches, the Son of God comes into existence when Mary conceived in her womb. That was the beginning of the Son of God. Before that, there was no Son of God except in the plan or the mind of God. And that's what the Bible teaches. There's no essential divisions of God in his personality, in his, in his, in his essence. Uh, the, the Trinity teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. But the, the Bible teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are designations for the different ways that God has manifested himself to us. He's manifested himself as a Father. He's revealed himself as the Son, and he reveals himself continually to us as a Holy Spirit. 
but it doesn't divide his personality. Jesus, according to the Trinity, is the Son of is God the Son made flesh. Now you'll notice that phrase God the Son, but if you type that into any translation of the Bible, the phrase God the Son does not exist in the scripture, not in the original Greek, not in the original Hebrew, not in any of the translations that we have to this date, is the phrase God the Son a biblical phrase. The Son of God is a biblical phrase, but God the Son is not. What's the difference? Well, the Son of God speaks of God begetting a son at a particular point in time, and that son living and doing the will of the Father. That's biblical. To say God the Son means that a God has become a son in some kind of a strange way and continues to exist as a son for all of eternity. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the the, the fullness of God incarnate or made flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the incarnation of the fullness of God in this um, in the in the scripture. The Son of God, according to the Trinity, is eternal, existing from time past. But according to the Bible, the Son is begotten, only existing when Mary conceived him in her womb. Water baptism, according to the Trinity, is correctly administrated by using the titles Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But water baptism, according to the Bible, is only correctly administered in the name of Jesus. And finally, when the Trinitarians get to some of these difficult things that we've we've uh, illustrated here, uh, they simply make the statement, the Godhead is a mystery. We cannot fully understand God. And while there, there is a little bit of truth to that, um, God's oneness is no mystery. We don't know everything there is to know about God, but we do know that God is one. We know what the Bible has revealed to us about God, and the Bible has revealed to us that God is one. This begins our lesson, and I hope you'll tune in next week as we continue this study. God bless you tonight. I hope this has been good. We are posting these online, um, these lessons on a specific podcast uh, for our Bible studies. Um, I can make that link available to everyone so you can go back and re-listen because I know this was heavy with scripture and content, um, so you can re-listen to that. But I hope you all have a great night. Good night. And God bless you. Take care. Thank you. Beautiful. Yay. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> awesome. All right. Good night.